Well, thank you, Mike, for your sharing, for your faithful ministry to our church, to the Cerritos flock, and also just your ministry in James 127, uh, helping us to uh, see the need of uh, orphans and widows here and throughout the world, and doing our part in praying and caring for them. Truly thank God for you, brother, and your wife, Sonia, as well, and uh, your two girls. Well, good to be back here on Sunday. We're going to resume our studies in Second Timothy. If you have your Bibles with you. Open your Bibles to Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read God's Word together, verses 1 through 9, but we'll study just as verses 1 through 1 and 2 today, but just for sake of context, we'll read the whole passage. Second Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> 1 through 9. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And after he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I was talking to a brother at the men's retreat, and he told me an illustration that he heard in a sermon. Uh, The preacher said, the Christian life is likened to riding your bike. Uh, they're called to ride this bike on a steep mountain. But the key thing is, you don't have any brakes. You begin this, once you're saved, you're called to ride this bike up a steep mountain, and you don't have any brakes. At any point, you stop pedaling. any point, you quit, you stop, then you'll fall over, you'll fall backwards. So driven by fear, driven by pride, and the fear of falling over or the fear of somebody outpacing you, you are to pedal as hard as you can without stopping until you die or until Christ comes back. I heard that illustration and I said, if I heard that, that would be a nightmare for me because I'm not about cardio. (laughs) I don't like low interval steady state. I like high intensity Interval training, so riding a bike or a treadmill without brakes would be um, a nightmare for me. Another brother said, if that's the, that's the Christian life, that was my mindset, and that's why I had the hardest time evangelizing. I had the hardest time sharing the gospel with my family and my friends, neighbors. Because why would I, knowing this, invite someone on this bike ride? Why, why would I do this? Because that person will hate me. Alright? That person will be so angry with me. Come on, let's go for a ride. <laughs> okay, come with me. We're gonna ride this bike. And then, after two miles on this steep incline. Oh, by the way, <laughs> there's no, there's no brakes. So if you stop, you're gonna fall over, um, a steep, a steep cliff, or you're gonna, you know, follow her backwards. That person will be so angry. 
in light of, of, of the gospel study, we realize that is not the Christian life. It is not our strength and our power. It is not self-reliance by which we live the Christian life. I believe that is why Paul wrote here in 2 Timothy 2.1. He, he will list the two most difficult challenges in the Christian life. Definitely in pastoral ministry. The two most difficult challenges. So he prefaces it by talking about, reminding and teaching Timothy where he is to derive his strength. Because on his own, he has no chance. On his own, it is impossible. Um, you know, it is not just the outward physical labor that is uh, the challenge here. I think, you know, outwardly, someone with great amount of self-will and a lot of fear and a lot of pride and a lot of discipline can accomplish this for the short term. For a limited amount of time. And if they're in an artificial environment like high school or college or graduate school, <laughs> they can do this. That's not real, real life. But for someone who lives working 50, 60 hours a week with one, two, three, four kids at home and all the pressures of life, all the challenges, all the heartaches and disappointments that life throws at you and at the same time you have to be pedaling nonstop or you fall out of God's grace, you will not make it because the battle is not just inward. It's, it's a two-front battle. It's external and internal. And the easier battle is the physical realm, the discipline realm. Right? That's the, the European front. That's the Western front. You know, we talk about European war, how USA, we won that war. But do we realize U.S. lost maybe 200, 250,000 uh, men in World War II in the European front. Russia on the Eastern front lost 9 million. Right? So if I have to choose, I'd fight on the Western front. Right, 250,000 casualties compared to 9 million. Uh, historians say Russia won that war for us. It was for Russia and the sacrifices of that nation. Hitler would have been able to concentrate his efforts on the Western Front and many more lives would have been lost. Likewise with us. If we think we're doing well in the Christian life because we have some amount of semblance of discipline, some semblance of outward ability or ministry or holiness, we are deceiving ourselves because that's the easy front. The, the difficult front is internal. The true battle rages within. We battle things like, and, and think about this. I mean, how do you battle these things? Because they're not external where you, where you battle it. They're from our own hearts. How do we battle ourselves? We battle things like pride. Selfishness, judgmentalism, lust, anxiety, greed, unthankfulness, unforgiveness, prayerlessness, covetousness, lack of self-control, insistence on having control, impatience, irritability, frustration, anger, resentment, jealousy, gossip, discontentment, bitterness, impure thoughts, Failure to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Disregarding God. Failure to trust God. Those are the battles that rage 24-7. 
And on our own strength, we have no hope of growing whatsoever. I mean, this morning I was coming to church, and um, my my routine is I stop by McDonald's, and I get one sausage burrito and one iced coffee. I had two one Sunday, and it was I was bloated the whole Sunday. So, <laughs> learn my lesson: one limit to one iced coffee, and I have to have salsa with that sausage burrito. Without it, it's like uh, you know you figure it out. It's not good, right? So I asked for salsa. And I get in my car, and I give him the bag, and I open, look, and no salsa. And the windows close, and I'm like, you know, honking my horn. And they don't hear me, or they're ignoring me. I'm, I'm a pastor going to church to lead praise, to preach. And I'm getting so impatient. I'm getting so upset. Where's my salsa? <laughs> Man, like, I have all I want. In the whole world right now, it's also. How do you how do you battle that? I mean, I didn't plan on that. I didn't plan on I'm gonna get upset if they don't give me salsa. It just at that moment and driving away, I'm like, James, what's wrong with you? What is? I know what it is. It's sitting in my heart. I woke up early, prepared my sermon, prayed, but I can't battle my own heart. Another pastor, um, Joe Coffee, wrote this. Uh, I found it to be incredibly challenging to give up the belief system that has sustained me for so long. One built on initial forgiveness and then fed through a powerful combination of pride and fear. Pride that stands in the performance of spiritual disciplines. Pride that pointed to the obvious signs of success. We were, after all, named in the fastest growing hundred churches in America. And most of all, pride that was fueled by the approval of others. But fear may have been an even greater motivator. Fear of being exposed is less than what people expect. Fear of not being as smart, as spiritual, or as competent as I should be. Fear of not measuring up. And fear of Luke twelve forty eight: To whom much is given, much will be required. I don't know about you, but whenever I heard that verse, it scared me. Right? Caused me anxiety. He said, the truth is, I've existed as a pastor with God's lowercase in my closet. There were times when these gods sustained me, and giving them up has caused more death this year than I would like to admit. The closet is still not empty. But the death of these gods has made me zealous for Christ. I now realize that the gospel is my source of security and significance. I would die. So as one who has vacillated between self-sufficiency and depression, gospel-driven transformation has been my liberty, has been my way out. I believe this is why Paul begins his next set of commands with, with verse 1. Because the Christian life, and most assuredly the Christian ministry, is impossible without receiving grace and strength from Jesus Christ. In verse 1, you is emphatic position. Paul is uh, getting Timothy's attention. You, then, as opposed to Phygelus and Herbogenes, the previous text. Unlike these men, 
who has abandoned the faith, who have gone astray, you then, my son, and he doesn't command him to avoid sin. He doesn't command him to be holy. He doesn't command him to be watch and alert. Don't be foolish like these, like these men who, who went astray from Christ. He says, you then, my child, my son of the faith. And he gives him this passive imperative. Receive. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Saying, Timothy, be dependent. Be reliant. Don't be, don't be proud of your strength. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. You are weak. You need Jesus. Not just for salvation, but for every step you take after faith. So be a receiver. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this is not isolated just to Timothy. This is a common command throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Paul's prayer was this. For the church at Ephesus. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner, inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. To comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the width, the length, and height, and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. His prayer is, Church of Ephesus, I want you to receive strength from Christ. I want you to know the power for the Christian life is, doesn't reside in you. It's not within us. It's within Christ. And my prayer is that you would tap into that power by trusting and relying and depending upon Christ. Ephesians 6.10, that whole armor of God, right? that spiritual warfare that Paul is calling the Ephesians to wage, wage war in, he, he begins that by verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The translators missed, missed it there. It's the same passive imperative. It's be strengthened in the strength of God's might. Right? Be strengthened by God's strength. Jesus Christ is the one who strengthens us to live the Christian life. In fact, later on in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, that's what Paul says, right? He says that my first court hearing, at my first defense, and my life was on the line, no one stood on my side. No one came and stood by me. They all deserted me, except verse 17, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me. I was able to not deny my faith. I was able to conquer my fear of suffering, persecution, and even death. I was able to keep a clear conscience and declare my faith without shame, with boldness and confidence, not because I am special, not because I am courageous, not because I am I'm a man. No, I was able to do this because the Lord, He stood by me, and He gave me strength without Him. I would have, like Peter, denied the Lord. Now, we are trying to synthesize this doctrine with what we know about Scripture and all the commands of Scripture. And that's a challenge to study the Bible, right? 
we, we can't just study one doctrine and establish whole, whole theological truth based on a few verses. We need to synthesize the truths of Scripture to get to a biblical doctrine. Um, simple illustration is 1 Timothy 2.5, between God and man, there is a man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is fully man. John 1, 1 and 14, Jesus Christ is God, who was from in the beginning. How do we just synthesize both doctrines? Therefore, he is fully God, he's fully man. Hypostatic union of Christ, he's the full God-man. We synthesize these doctrines. So how are we to understand passive imperatives with active imperatives? Because the Bible is full of active imperatives. We need to go just a few verses in 2 Timothy, and we'll find in verse 15, Paul calling Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. He's calling Timothy to be diligent. Make every effort. How do we understand this passive imperative, active imperative? Jerry Bridges is very helpful in his book, The Book Ends of the Christian Life. It gives us this phrase, dependent responsibility. Dependent responsibility. It is our responsibility to obey all these commands. But we do it all the while depending on Christ, not on ourselves. Relying on grace. And they're all synonymous, you know, functionally. When we talk about Jesus, gospel, grace, we're talking about separate entities. But when we talk about functionally for our Christian life, they're synonymous. When I say grace, when I say Jesus, when I say gospel, when I say mercy, it all means the same thing. The source of our Christian life is not to be lived based on our own strength, but on Christ, on the gospel, on his grace. Uh, at Jonathan Bridges, let me quote, quote him. He said, diligent effort runs throughout the New Testament. Matthew twenty six forty one. watch and pray. 2 Corinthians 7.1, cleanse yourselves from every evil defilement. 1 Corinthians 9.27, discipline your body, keep it under control. 1 Corinthians 15.58, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.17, 4.7, train yourselves to be godly. Hebrews 12.14, strive for holiness. And Bridges says, all these scriptures are action statements. They express something we are to do. They're not good advice. They're moral commands. This is serious business. These statements aren't merely commands of a human father or a teacher or a coach. No, they're expressions of the will of God. The direct commands of the infinitely holy God. The absolute sovereign of the universe. Scriptures like these not only express the moral will of God, but they also reveal our responsibility that we are called to diligence, effort, and hard work. On the other hand, all our hard work is to be done in dependence on the Holy Spirit to enable us and to make our work effective. There is an apparent conflict, apparent contradiction. It is a mystery. It is a paradox. But it is the biblical solution that we ride this bike uphill but not by our strength. It's not us laboring. It feels like it because we're sweating. We're losing our breath. We're cramping up. We're getting tired. Our backs are aching. 
But there is joy in our hearts because it's not up to us. There's no fear of burning out. There's no fear of giving up. There is no fear of falling over the cliff and dying. Or falling backwards and forsaking Christ. Our hearts are filled with joy because our dependence is on God's grace. And we trust Him that He will never fail us. That His grace is inexhaustible. He will never um, grow faint. He will never... Uh, it, will, it will never be empty. What we are to do remains the same. Second Timothy 2.1 tells us how we are to do them is to be different. What is the same? We are to do all these things, but how we are to do them, they are to be different. And this how is very important. I'll give you four reasons why. Four reasons why this passive imperative verbs ought to be your favorite verbs in the Bible. Anytime you come upon a passive imperative, you should highlight it. I hope after my four reasons, you will. It will become your favorite verbs. Why, first of all? Because Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds this house, those who build it, build it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over this city... The watchmen stay awake for nothing, in vain. John 15, 4 through 6. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, either can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are horrifying verses. Let's think from God's perspective. We ride this bike up this steep mountain without brakes. And at the end of the race, God will tell us, Oh man, you climbed the wrong mountain. Right. All your life, you're agonizing yourself to climb here. And that, that was the mountain over there. And all the rewards are there, here. You don't even get a cold cup of water. You get absolutely nothing. Right? So, relying on your own strength, you might look like you're growing in holiness, like the Mormons. You might be growing in asceticism, like the Roman Catholics. You might be evangelizing, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. And there might be a semblance, externally, of righteous deeds. But, not what you did, but how you did it, in your heart. You're boasting of yourself, relying on your strength. And your will, it was your resolve, it was your commitment, it was your yourself, it was your depending on. At the end, it's all for nothing. All for nothing. First Corinthians three, ten through fifteen. Paul wrote, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation which is Christ. If anyone builds upon this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, Wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be refined by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built in the foundation survives, and if he built with gold, silver, precious stones, it will survive. He will receive a reward. But if he built his Christian life based on himself, wood, hay, and straw, it will all burn up. 
He himself is saved. But as though, as the one who's passing just through the fire. Only as through fire. Very next section, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. We can't say what fruits are good and what fruits are not because you don't know my heart, right? I could be still bitter about salsa right now, right? You don't, you don't know my heart. You don't know what's motivating me to preach, what's motivating me as a husband, as a father, as a friend. So don't, we can't know. Our fruit kind of reveals, but we can't know for sure. We can't know for you. Judge nothing before the pronounce, before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And at that time, he will disclose the purposes of the heart. I like NIV translation there. The motivations of the heart. God will disclose why we were doing this. Who we were depending on. Who were we doing it for. How we were riding this bike. At that time, each one received his commendation from God. So if you want, if you don't want to uh, be laboring up a wrong hill, Right? And at the end, you realize your whole life, you're laboring in vain. There's nothing. And this passive imperative is a, a very important verb for us to consider. Secondly, it determines who gets the glory. It, it determines who, who gets the honor, who gets the credit, who receives the praise, the accolades. Romans three twenty one through 25, talking about justification is by faith alone. And we cannot separate salvation, sanctification, and glorification. That's what's one entity. It's one unit. Especially as a church committed to Reformed theology, all the more we're committed to that, that God will glorify who He saves, God will sanctify who he saves, and God will save who he saves. It is one one unit. Can't be separated. So Paul talks about justification, this one unit. And then he concludes in verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. If it's salvation by works, if it's sanctification, ministry by works, or glorification by works, there is boasting. There is like walking with a swagger. There is like, you know, popping off and, you know, like reviewing highlight plays, right? But by works of, by, by, by faith alone, there is no boasting of man. Christ alone gets all the glory. So if you're, uh, zealous for the honor of Christ. If you want to live your life exalting Christ and renouncing self, like being repentant, denying who you are, all the world says, all your heart says, you says, I'm a sinner. All my righteous things are like filthy rags. I deserve neither attention, especially don't deserve praise. All glory goes to Christ and Christ alone. That's your heart. You love passive imperative verbs. You love chapter 2, verse 1. Third reason is because, again, as being repetitious here, grace, again, is the power for the Christian life. Grace is the power. And without it, we can't win. It's not like 
Grace is not like Yao Ming, you know. Without him, we play better, right? Man, if it was for grace, I would just like be this great Christian. And grace is getting in my way. The seven six guy, so slow, doesn't play defense, right? Doesn't get back on D. If I could, we could be a better team. No, grace is not Yao Ming. Remember, remember that, right? Without grace, it's 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 our only power. Grace is synonymous with strength, with power. Second Corinthians twelve nine through ten. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ. Now you see the synonymous there: grace of Christ, the power of Christ, be rest on me. This grace is in Christ. We receive this grace by trusting in Christ. Fourth reason why uh, passive imperative verbs ought to be our favorite verbs in the Bible is because of these top two difficulties in the Christian life and ministry. In verse 2 and 3, we find two active uh, imperatives. Entrust and suffer. Entrust and suffer. We'll study suffering next week, but today we will find that these two commands are so difficult, so challenging, that without God's help, we have no hope. Right. Verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is looking at four generations Paul, his content of his ministry, his public preaching and his life, he entrusted to Timothy. Timothy is to entrust this body of truth to people, reliable men, who will teach others. There's four generations in mind here. And it's a significant ministry Paul's talking about because it's truth and people. Entrust this body of doctrine, this truth, and have them entrusted to others. And we need this passive imperative because this is so difficult. You know, earlier, maybe 20 years ago, I would have said, entrust reliable men, I'll do it. All right, no problem. Jump with both feet. Suffering, that's me. All right. Now, I look at this and I say, I can't do this. Apart from the grace of God, these are impossible commands. 90% of our mistakes as a church, 90% of our elders' mistakes have been entrusting to reliable men, figuring out who are the reliable, trustworthy, faithful men and who are the unreliable, untrustworthy, unfaithful men. 90% of our mistakes have been made here. 90% of my pain, disappointment, and sorrow is because of this. of my gray hair and 90% of Bob's lack of hair. (laughs) Sorry, Bob. But it's true. It's because of our leaders. Not current leaders, but our leaders for the first 10 years. And Keller said, you know, we have children, our hearts are tied to our unhappiest child. Our hearts are tied to the most undisciplined, rebellious, sinful child. You could have nine great kids. Right? You have one that's like rebellious, right? living, wasting life, 
right? Sinful, selfish. Your heart is not, I have nine good ones. What's one like, you know? No, your heart is tied to that one. That's your level of happiness, level of joy, level of thanksgiving. Well, our hearts are broken because of this issue. This has been the most difficult thing about being a pastor. You know, non-believers only hurt me. Right? And believers, man, you know, you guys are like Christians. You know, like, I, I look at you guys and, and not to like demean you at all, but like, you know, and Emma or Ethan Sin, like, Emma's four, Ethan's three. It's okay. They're kids. Right? I can like handle it. But when leaders hurt you, they grieve you. They make crazy decisions. It's like um, that Brian Adams song, Cuts Like a Knife. <laughs> I don't want to get too emotional, so i got to put that humor there to like, keep myself from going over the edge. But, I mean, it, it really hurts. Bob and I, when we started out, we're like, we have fire in our eyes. Let's go. Let's raise leaders. Now, man, like been so hurt, so disappointed by leaders. Um, you know, there was a time where we're like, man, whatever we're doing, it's not working. <laughs> whatever we're doing, like, we're lost. We would sit in meetings and we'd just be hurt. Just like grieving together because it is so um, disappointing. It's so challenging. I think that's what... Paul, Paul names names here. I think he names in 115 Phygelus and Hermogenes. I think these were leaders that the church of Ephesus knew about. They were trusted men, godly and spiritual men, whom people hoped in. He names later on in 217 and 18 Hymenaeus and Philetus. And later on he names Demas. I think Demas was one of those key guys. And he says, you know what? I thought of all the guys. I thought Demas would be with me. He deserted me. Because he loved the world. At the end of his life, Paul is all alone. Only sustaining him. His grace. Paul is mentioning here, able men who are not faithful. It's easy to find able men. It's hard to find. Rare is the man who is able and faithful, reliable, trustworthy. There's few who are faithful but not able to teach. So that's, that doesn't work either. You've got to have both. But there are far more men who have this ability of knowledge, of skills, talents, and gifts. But um, they're not faithful. They're not reliable. They're not steadfast over the long haul. I've had my share of such men. Right, men like look at their portfolio and looks like a great investment, and you invest in them, invest in them, and after many years you find out a Ponzi scheme, Bernie Madoff, all that I invested, there's no like little return, it's gone. In fact, I owe I owe money, right? I have to pay taxes or something, right? It's a big scam. Um, you know, Paul names, I'm not going to name names, but there's a, people ask, hey, what's been the most difficult thing in ministry? And I don't have to think. It's like a blink response. This person, this thing, this event. Uh, there was a guy in our church. 
I trusted him more than I trusted myself. I really did. I considered, Bob and I considered a third elder of our church. We, and he, you know, kind of a mystery. He was the most disciplined guy I knew. At the same time, the most undisciplined guy I knew. He was kind of a mystery in that way. He was committed to prayer and to the word. When we're planning our church, Bob and I were, let's do all these things. And he was saying, let's do a prayer notebook. Let's base this, our church on prayer. He voraciously read the Puritans. Intense minister, really, a servant. Second only to Peter Smith as a servant. A very conscientious brother. He was known for not watching TV, not watching movies. He wouldn't drive over the speed limit. Faithful ministry. We, we, he preached here. He led here. And many times he was my boast. I would talk about him. One day he stopped coming to church. Months not coming to church. Over a year of painstakingly pursuing him, rebuking him, dialoguing with him, reconciling with him, and, and di- dividing again. It was... Um, point of uh, no return, there was an impasse, and he was saying, and I had no idea what was going on. He, could, he said was, he couldn't respect me anymore. He couldn't trust me. He accused me and Bob of many things. All this was done before Bob and other leaders. I had no idea where this was all coming from. Years later, we found out he was playing in poker tournaments. He considered gambling like pornography, and yet we found out that one of the guys was flipping through cable and landed on poker tournament. I think he was flipping. I don't know. We'll see. But, and uh, he was there playing poker, right? And it's a big, I don't know, big thing now. You can log on. And actually, I Googled him this, this week, and I found him with his pictures. And uh, it's all on the Internet. They have like player rankings. It's like fantasy league for poker players or something. And uh, last year, he didn't have a good year. He only made $5,000. He placed 11th and 24th place. So his first tournament victory was right when he started missing church. He was playing so much poker that he kept missing church. It was so painful, so so sad. Who do I blame? Well, first of all, I blame Hawaiian Gardens Casino, right? First person I blame. Second, I blame Sin. Third, I blame him. But fourth, maybe first... I blame myself. Right. Blame myself. Right. It's like parenting. Right. You have a child going astray. You raised that child. How can you say, right, you, if you're a parent with any kind of modicum of life, humility or conscientiousness, you will say, Man, what did I do to drive this child away? Where did I fail? What did I say wrong or do wrong? to produce this. I will um, forever walk with a limp because of this. And the news is, he was the first but not the last. You know, it's been continual, almost like a repeated like pattern here of men, great portfolio. After a few years, they flame out. There's a big Ponzi scheme. And they find, reveal them to be unreliable. So my limp, Bob's limp, our leader's limps are getting worse. 
what Paul says, Timothy. There's a lot of guys. A lot of guys with ability. A lot of guys who feign faithfulness, reliability, trustworthiness. But make sure you do a careful selection of finding out who the truly reliable men are. And only to them, entrust them, my life and my doctrine, that they might pass it on to the next generation. The Greek word is pistos. I appreciated this thought that it's not commitment to word or someone who's praised a lot or who's holy or intense, passionate, zealous or with a lot of knowledge. It's a, a generic word. Not necessarily a spiritual, spiritual word. It's a virtue understood and seen even by the world by common grace. This is the quality we are to look for in leaders. So difficult. We need God's grace to do this. How is uh, faithfulness proven? How can we discern whether a man is reliable, a trustworthy man? These three things came up. Uh, first, he's tested and revealed by time. Right. Tested and revealed by time. First, to me, three six. Talking about an elder, he must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That was our first mistake. We're a young church. We're all young. We're all recent converts. Out of pragmatism, we laid hands far too quickly. Reputation of reliability is earned over time. That's why GM is uh, filing for bankruptcy and Ford as well, and yet Honda and Toyota, right, they're doing well. Because over decades, the reliability of these cars has been clearly seen. It takes time. Reliability is consistency in one direction over a long time. How long has this person been walking with Christ? How is he, has he proven himself over years, decades, that he is, in his character, truly a faithful man? I remember uh, I was at a TMS banquet years ago, and we were up in this restaurant up in the mountains in, in Hollywood, and you have dinner first, and after dinner, before dessert, we would have a speaker share 20 minutes. And we had this pastor who came up and spoke, and he had been a pastor for over 40 years. He was an aged man. He was kind of slurring his word, kind of monotone, kind of barely, you know, hear him say some words. Well, behind him, all of a sudden, a fireworks display began. And all these fireworks were blaring right behind him, behind the window. And for me, though, I was not distracted. Because fireworks are beautiful, they're brilliant, they're different, right, appeal, but they're temporary, they're fleeting, they're but for a few seconds. This man has earned my respect, has earned my attention by being in one church for over 40 years and preaching God's word. 
you know, some young leaders, they're here today and they're gone tonight. Reliable men are here for the long haul. Secondly, a reliable man, man is tested and revealed by trials. Tested and revealed by trials. First Timothy 3.10, talking about deacons. Let them also be tested first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So let them be tested. Let them live life. Character comes out under pressure. A Christian is like a tea bag. You don't know what's inside until he's in some hot water. Let them be tested. Give him some time in the world and real life. And then you'll see if he passes the test or not. Observe him when he loses a relationship. Observe him when he loses money. When he loses a job. He loses his health or strength. Or he loses a dream. See how they respond to these life disappointments. How they respond to these relationship challenges. Knowing that iron sharpens iron, but not without sparks, friction, and heat. When they rub against other people in the world, or their family, or fellow believers, there's a lot of friction and heat, sparks. See how he responds. And you will know if he's a reliable man or not. And thirdly, his faithfulness is proven when his love for Christ's church is tested. Love for Christ's church is tested. John 10, 11 through 13, Christ said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd, the colossal shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. A hired hand, he's not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. He runs because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, At first glance, this saying of Christ seems very trite. Yet a little reflection will show that it enunciates a profound principle. A man does what he does because he is what he is. There is a rigid consistency between character and conduct. The drunkard drinks because he's a drunkard. A man lies because he's a liar. A man steals because he's a thief. This man runs because he is a hired hand. This man flees because in his heart he cares Nothing for the sheep. Character is revealed by our conduct when the wolf comes. When trials come. When predators and threats come into the church. The conduct of the leader reveals who he really is. The shepherd stays. He lays himself down on behalf to protect the sheep. The hired hand is running for the gate. Because he doesn't care for the sheep. He cares only for himself. Their running reveals that their love was for themselves. That they're in the ministry for themselves. That they're pursuing Christ for themselves. That they're serving others for themselves. Not truly for Christ's 
church. A reliable man proves himself when times are difficult. He stands the line, is faithful to Christ and his church, and he puts the church first and himself last. That's what Paul said about Timothy, right, in Philippians. He said, I have no one else like Timothy who has a genuine interest in your welfare. Timothy is not like other men. He doesn't care about himself. His hopes, dreams, and aspirations, what's in it for him, he cares for Christ's church. A few closing thoughts. Let me ask you, are you, uh, how important is the passive imperative to you? Are you being strengthened by grace every day? Or are you relying on yourself? Some symptoms of relying on self-syndrome. Lack of evangelism. There's lack of spontaneous evangelism. Where, man, you want to tell people about the gospel. No, you lack that because you're in this bike ride uphill and there's no break, so... How can there be joy in this message? You're relying on yourself. The lack of evangelism, spontaneous, sharing the gospel to others. It's a duty, it's a task, it's a meeting, a personal obligation. Is there a fear of burning out? That's a sure sign that you're relying on yourself. Is there resentment toward your fellow Christians? Resentment toward your leaders? Resentment toward your elders? Third sign of uh, relying on yourself. Are you looking down on younger men and women? Right. Say to yourself, I can't fellowship with younger Christians because they're so immature. I have very little to learn from them. What can they? What do they have to teach me? I can't trust them because they're so young. That's uh, ageism. Right. That's boasting in your flesh. That's pr- pride and pride of your life. Right. Run through this passive imperative. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Secondly, do you realize that every believer is being tested? Not in your ability, but in your reliability. You're being tested by God right now. Tested about your time, endurance, about your how you respond to trials, and tested in your love for Christ's church. Yes, we are tempted to take shortcuts. We don't want to put in the time. We are tempted to bypass trials, not realizing that is how we mature in the faith. Tempted to bypass love for Christ's church, as if that's optional for the leader. If I just have knowledge, if I'm gifted, if I'm charismatic, if I'm effective, I'll be a good leader. Not realizing the first quality of a good shepherd is you lay down your life for the sheep. You realize God is testing you to reveal to you who you are so that you might grow in these areas. Thirdly, um, are you boasting of your weaknesses? You know, we're um, considering a flock reorganization, so we're talking to a few people. We're considering them for leadership. We're recruiting them to join us in serving our church by leading a group. Talk to one person. Such an encouraging, powerful time, the person said. 
When I asked the person if they would consider serving as a leader, the person replied, but James, you know, our family, we're so selfish. We don't love people. You know, we, we love ourselves so much more than we ought to love others. And we don't love Christ as we are. James, uh, we are so weak. I don't know if we can serve in this way. If you want spiritually strong, mature, powerful people, the person said to me, we're not them. But if you are looking for weak people who are depending on Christ, hoping that Christ will help them love others, serve others, care for others, then we trust in Christ. Christ might be able to do it. That's what Paul said, right, against 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. What is your response? What would, you be, what, 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 what would be your response? Would you say, man, finally, you saw, you know, my maturity. You guys are so blind. Finally, you've come to your senses and saw what an awesome, godly, mature leader I could be. And you're privileged for my service, for my ministry. Is that a heart response or... The heart responds, wow, I'm so selfish. I'm so weak. I don't love Christ others as I ought. But I'm depending on God's grace. This passage imperative. And with God's help, if you believe we can do it, we'll trust in the Lord. And finally, uh, if I can speak the truth, our current leadership team, Bob and I, Dan, Joe, Jason, and Gary. By God's grace, oh, I love this team. All right. These men are time-tested men. They have been tested by time. They have been with us, good times and bad, thick and thin, right. for better or for worse. They've been reliable. They've never wavered in their commitment to Christ. These men have been tested by trials. I've seen them personally endure great disappointments in life. They are not proud men. They are not walking with a swagger. They're not boasting in self. Their testimony is faith in Christ has carried them through. And they've been tested in their love for Christ church. I could speak for each of them. I could have chosen any of them, but I, I mean, Joe stands, Joe Jones, you know, comes out where his heart is. It's not about me, James. I don't care. Whatever you want me to do, it's about the church. It's about Cornerstone. It's about building her up. I'll do anything. I'll do nothing if, if that means Christ's church is being built up. I'll sit on the bench. Right? I'll be the loudest cheerleader on the bench watching others get my playing time if that means our team will win. Right? I thank God for these men but if I can speak to these men for just a minute and let you listen in, we need to, uh, you know, by being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, we need to walk by faith, not by sight. We need to hand over ministry. We need to give younger men opportunities, younger women as well opportunities. We need to pass the ball to them, give them playing time. And see how they will do. We need to begin this process of entrusting God's truth and God's people to younger men.
because they are the future of our church. It is pride and ageism on our part if we think God, God can only use older people. No, they will surpass us in theology and surpass us with his people. I speak to our leaders, days are long, but the years are short. Before we know it, it'll be too late. Before we know it, it'll be time to pass the baton. There'll be no one to pass it to because we were so weak in faith. We weren't trusting in God's grace, relying upon God's grace. We were relying on ourselves. Let's be proactive. Not just the six leaders, but all ministry leaders, all flock shepherds. Let's be proactive. Let's be engaged. Let's submit to Paul's commands to us. Let's observe younger men and women. Let's observe them be tested by time, by trials, and love for the church. Let's invest in them. Let's come alongside them. And let's set them free. Let's give them freedom to serve Christ and lead Christ's church. And the grace that carried us thus far, that same grace will carry them. Because our faith is not in them. Our faith is in the grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh God, we uh, are brought low by this great privilege of not just salvation, not just growth, but to be instruments in your hands for uh, the building up of your church, the maturing, growing in holiness, being set apart of your body of believers here at Cornerstone. We know that your grace is active here your gospel is bearing fruit and you are doing it all. You are the Alpha and Omega. You are the author and perfecter. You have just chosen us by grace and it's by grace. You're, you're using us as means to your work being accomplished. We pray that we will not get in the way by our pride, by our self-sufficiency and self-reliance. We will not grieve the Holy Spirit by it. But Lord, we would walk in the Spirit. We would trust in the gospel we will submit to your scriptures and allow you to build your church through your word. We pray that this uh, command to entrust to reliable men be upon our hearts as leaders, be upon the hearts of younger men of our church uh, for the sake of your glory in our, in our body. Lord, we would uh, ask that you would do this work as we put ourselves to be diligent, striving, laboring to have it done. Our trust is in you. Or may you raise up another generation of godly men and women who will be proven and tested by time to be reliable servants who will faithfully build up and serve your church. Thank you and pray all this in your name.